1: and welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow-up episode for episode number 513, A Pre-Existing Condition. In this week's episode, we explored the original source into Damien Eccles becoming a suspect in this investigation. Throughout the episode, we covered a grand total of two days of the initial investigation.
0: Now this Friday follow-up is going to be a little different than normal because we had to record this earlier than usual.
1: That's right, so it's actually Monday morning right now, and we usually don't record the Friday follow-ups until at least Wednesday. But I've had something come up, and I actually have to head back down to Arkansas this week. I'm actually leaving tomorrow. So in order to make sure we got this Friday follow-up done before I had to leave, Mike's going to summarize a lot of the questions and comments and discussions that have been happening on the Truth and Justice podcast fans page, on our Twitter feed, and on the Facebook page, as well as incorporating some emails but this will be more of a discussion between me and Mike rather than him reading a bunch of specific emails and comments from listeners.
0: All right, with that being said, we better go ahead and get started. Okay, first things first, a lot of listeners want to know why Steve Jones was involved to begin with and what exactly his involvement was.
1: That's a good question, and I still don't really have the answer to it. Now, many people have suggested and it's entirely possible that this was an all hands on deck type of situation where the West Memphis PD is just trying desperately to find the boys. We know they've contacted the county search and rescue team and they may have specifically asked for the juvenile officers to get involved. Jones may have just heard what was going on and just showed up on the scene, but we have no record of him being called to the scene. So we don't really know exactly why he was there. We only know that he was, in fact, there. Now, as far as what his involvement was, this gets a little bit tricky, and I thought I was actually losing my mind for a minute when I started reading the Facebook page, because listener Jennifer Carlson had posted a transcript from one of the trials where Detective Mike Allen discusses the fact and says that, in fact, Steve Jones spotted the shoe and directed him into the creek where he found the boys. Now, many of you may remember all the way back to episode 502 when we discussed the situation and the follow-up that followed that episode where we said that Jones wasn't mentioned, that Mike Allen said that he's the one that spotted the shoes. Well, after doing some digging last night, uh, late last night, I discovered the reason for the confusion is because there's a lot of confusion there. So the clip that I had played in the initial trial transcript that I was reading to figure out what happened with the search came from the first trial in this case. And for those of you that know the case, you realize that is Jesse Miss Kelly's trial and not the second trial, which was Damien Eccles and Jason Baldwin. So this is what happened. We have conflicting testimonies. In the first trial, when Alan testified, it's the clip that you all heard back in episode 502, he said that he noticed the shoe in the water. And actually, you can see there that he kind of catches himself, or I I, I guess catches himself to make it sound like he was doing something on purpose. I don't know that that's the case. But it says in the transcript, it was pointed out, and then there's a hyphen, and it says, I observed a shoe in the water. I went down the bank, got the shoe, so on and so forth. Later, in cross-examination, he's asked who all was on the scene. He names names, and he says he can't remember the guy's name. Oh, wait, I think it's Steve Jones. So in cross, he mentions that Steve Jones is there. But in direct, he says that he observed the shoe in the water. He starts to say that someone pointed it out, and then he says he observed it. I don't know if it was just a, a mistake. Uh, if he didn't intend to do that, I, I can't begin to understand that part of it. But that's why there's some confusion there, because he said different things in different trials. The second trial, which is the transcript that was posted onto the fan page, he does, in fact, say clearly that Steve Jones found the shoe and called him over there. Now, the issue gets further complicated when you start reading through the testimonies of Brian Ridge and Gary Gitchell, and see some of the information that was put out in the documentaries. It just It's a big, mashed up, confusing mess about what exactly happened, and that's what I think created the Uh, the mystery around, you know, like I said, the, the invisible man, Steve Jones, because he's somebody that not only was there, but he's really the one that discovered the location of the bodies. But then we never hear from him. There's not a single police report from Steve Jones in the files that I've seen. And he's not called to testify at trial by either side. He just kind of disappears. But he was the one that actually, like I said, directed Mike Allen into the water where the bodies were found. So uh, it's a little bit confusing, but hopefully that clears up why there is some confusion. Okay, and then
0: we had one listener ask if you've tried to find somebody, a source currently or formally from the West Memphis Police Department, who is willing to talk to you. Kind of a deep throat, so to speak.
1: Okay, so they're they're asking if someone might be willing to like be almost a mole or an informant as to what happened back then? Yeah, I think so. Okay, no, uh, I haven't spoken with anybody that uh, has come forward from the police department, from the West Memphis PD that's really shed any light at all. Uh, However, strangely enough, Steve Jones seems to be that guy. So at the beginning of the investigation, he directs Sudbury. We know that for a fact. He directs Sudbury on the day the bodies were found and says, you know, they both agree that they think this is a satanic killing, and Jones tells Sudbury, as documented in Sudbury's report, that Damien Eccles is the only person they think could be responsible for this. Well, as it turns out, Damien Eccles as best friends with Jason Baldwin. Now, Steve Jones was actually Jason Baldwin's parole officer. And Jason has gone on record in a couple of places, one specifically when he spoke with me, that he actually liked Steve Jones, says he was fair, didn't have any problems with him. Now, as, if you research the, a little bit further, you'll see that when Baldwin interviewed with Mara Leverett when she was writing the book The Devil's Not, that he did have some issues with Jones. For the most part, it seemed like they got along Uh, But Baldwin says he started to have a problem with Jones when Jones started targeting Damien. Uh, And there's some pretty derogatory language in the book about what Jason says Jones was saying about Damien. In that book, Jason also says that Jones uh, kept accusing him or telling him, I know you're going to be starting a cult. Uh, And he gets on to him about wearing the rock and roll T-shirts and things like that. But for the most part, Jason likes Steve Jones, it seems like. At least that's what he told me when I spoke with him, and I've heard him in other interviews say the same thing. Well, as we know, Jones directed the investigation to Damien Eccles, but it seems that he was not thrilled when him directing it towards Damien Eccles ended up bringing in Jason Baldwin because all indications are that Steve Jones did like Jason. And so, when I say that, you know, he could be the, you know, the quote deep throat as the as the writer wrote there in the email. It's actually from Steve Jones where we hear all the stories about the, the lunar calendar in Jerry Driver's office, about the full moon night patrols to look for animal sacrifices. And it's Steve Jones who said throughout all of that that they never actually found any indication of any satanic cult activity, which lends some credibility. And we're, we're going to get into the credibility and a lot of the debate, I'm sure, uh, with some of the things that Damien said on the podcast this week but you know, one of the things Damien said is that Driver was always showing him pictures of these animals saying it was an animal sacrifice, and Damien said it looked like roadkill to him. Well, then you look at Steve Jones, who was the one that was with Jerry Driver while he was investigating the so-called satanic activity in the area, and Jones says that they never found any. So it doesn't seem that Jones thought whatever those pictures were were actually you know images or photos of an animal sacrifice. So Jones kind of exposes Driver later on, and then later, much later, during what's called a Rule 37 hearing, an investigator named Thomas Quinn actually spoke to Jones, and Jones was very clear. Uh, and there's there's actually reports that Jones like broke down and cried during a lot of these investigations that he was harboring a lot of guilt. But it's documented in the Rule 37 transcripts that this Thomas Quinn interviewed Jones, and Jones went on and said that he believes that Jason Baldwin is innocent, and he went so far as to say, according to Thomas Quinn that Jones said he went so far to say that he believes Jason Baldwin had nothing to do with this, that he would have no problem inviting Jason Baldwin into his home and letting him watch his 10-year-old child. So Jones, as he was kind of the impetus to get this thing started, later on was, you know, talking about Jerry Driver and the investigation in general. He thinks Jason Baldwin is innocent and that Driver never actually found anything. So uh, there's a lot to be analyzed and interpreted, you know, on your own for whatever you think. And you just got, there's so much to read. You just got to read and read and read and read and read. And there's so many people that are so far ahead of me in all this reading. That's why every episode of the podcast, people are, going, well, did you know this? Did you know this? Did you know this? And and the answer is no, I didn't. You know, and we're doing the investigation piece by piece chronologically. So you know, the, people are like, well, did you know that you know a year later, so and so said this in the trial? Said, well, no, I don't because I haven't gotten to the trial yet in my own research. But in any case, regarding Jones, my my opinion, it seems to me, if all of this stuff is true, if Thomas Quinn, the investigator, is telling the truth, and Marl Leverett, when she interviewed him, and when he interviewed for The Blood of Innocence, that Jones was all about pointing the finger at Damien. According to Jason, when he interviewed with Marl Leverett, Jones hated Damien and had it out for Damien. And I think that he had no problem pointing the finger at Damien and making the investigation go that direction. But when Baldwin got drug into it, that's when Jones wanted to tap the brakes. And I'm wondering if it's possible. I'm not saying this is true, but it's possible. It's made me wonder could that be why he then became the invisible man? You know, if he was the one saying, wait a minute, guys, that dude had nothing to do with it, I, I don't think that's right. And all the satanic stuff isn't, you know, we didn't find anything. If he, and, and they just left him out of the trial because he would have been detrimental to the case. There's, there's even reports somewhere where Jones said, that he went and visited Jason when he was in prison and said he was going to help him or in jail. I don't know if it ever happened or not, but there, there's a lot. As you dig deeper into Steve Jones, you start to find out that all evidence seems to indicate that he did not want Jason going to prison for this crime and that he also did not think Jason Baldwin was guilty of this crime.
0: Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club! <sighs> even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's
1: chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Revoid we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.
0: All right. There's been a lot of discussion on social media about the pentagram tattoo on Damien. Can we get into that for a little bit?
1: Yeah. So that I have to take some responsibility here because I tried to do Mike's job for him uh, this week. We were way behind schedule this week. So Mike did his job editing the interview just to clean up sound, and then I did the edit, final edit, and I, I did some editing in that interview that at the time seemed like it didn't matter, and it was just to make it more listenable and flow better, you know, because I have a rule that we never, ever edit interviews or change content. Well, I inadvertently, and I take full responsibility for this, did change the content. So, and this is what happened, and, and Mike, you were present for all of this and, and heard it. When I originally asked Damien if he had a, the pentagram tattoo, So so the conversation started because I was reading the reports and it said he had a pentagram tattoo. And then I looked at the pictures of him shirtless and there's no tattoo. And so I asked Damien, because I'm thinking, well, they were lying about this tattoo, right? So that's what I was thinking, based on, not any preconceived notions or anything, I'm just looking at a picture of the guy's naked chest and there's no tattoo on it, from what I could see. So I asked Damien, did you even have a pentagram tattoo? And his initial response to me was, yeah, I think so. Now, understand, for those of you that don't know, Damien Eccles has literally hundreds of tattoos now. He's covered in tattoos. Uh, and so he says, yeah, I, I think I did. Let me look and see. And, and so there's there's like three or four minutes of audio where he's he's got his phone down, and he's looking through the tattoos on his chest to see if there's a pentagram tattoo on there. And he's like, well, I, I don't see it. And, and I said, and, and it turns out, and I feel really bad about this because it turns out that I, I guess— Talked him into it, for lack of a better term, and I didn't mean to. I just said, well, I'm thinking there wasn't one because I'm looking at your picture and there isn't one there. And he's like, well, I thought so. And then he, he finds, and that's the part that I included when he found the other tattoo, which was, what did he say, a Venus symbol, the cross. Yeah. With a hoop on it. Yep. Um, which was also drawn on the uh, report by, I think, um, was it Griffin or Sudbury? One of them might have even been Durham, but one of the officers actually drew that tattoo, the cross, with a circle on it. So uh, at the end of the day, I'm like, so did, did you have one or not? And he's like, well, I, I don't think so. I guess I I guess I guess didn't. And, and there's people <laughs> there's people in this case that are, that have their opinions already dead set, and they're not going to change, and they're going to say that's all bullshit, and that's fine. But I'm just telling you what happened, because I feel bad, because this was 100% my mistake in the fact that Damien, first of all, didn't care about the tattoo, and no one should, because what's ended up happening, I guess I should jump ahead, is people found on trial transcripts and plenty of other places where Damien was asked about the tattoo after the fact, and he said yes, he did have a pentagram tattoo. So he in fact did have one. Now also in the trial transcript, they said is it a devil-worshipping pentagram, and he says no, it's right side up. So I don't know about these things, but apparently the satanic pentagram is pointed down. And the one that was on Damien's chest was pointed up, which is, I guess, like, you know, white witchcraft or something or Wicca. I I don't know. I really don't know. But it wasn't like he was, like, concerned that people would know that because, first of all, he didn't think it mattered. Uh, But he did say that he thought he had it. He couldn't find it on his chest. And then I told him, well, I'm looking at the picture. It's not there. And then he was like, well, I guess, no, I didn't. So anyway, when I edited I didn't think anybody wanted to listen to, you know, three or four minutes or however long it was of him you know looking for a tattoo and you hear him just kind of mumbling to himself trying to find it. So I just cut it out. I left the part in there where you could tell that he was looking for the cross, letting the listeners know, letting you guys know, I guess, that he was actually looking at his chest trying to find them. So anyway, that's that's my fault. The the bottom line is Damien Nichols did, in fact, have that tattoo It's not there now because I talked to him again afterwards and asked him about it. And he said, well, I thought I did, but he still can't find it. Well, then I asked him if, you know, where he got the tattoo done. And I think that might be our answer in the fact that they weren't, I guess, actual tattoos. The tattoos that he had were done with him with a safety pin and pin ink. So that's probably why it was described as faded. And it may have just faded away over time. But uh, in any case, I don't think that the tattoo was relevant. uh, So it wasn't a big deal that the edit that I made was at the time, because I thought that he actually did not have one. And so I didn't think it was necessary to include three or four minutes of him looking for a tattoo that wasn't there. And at the end of the day, the result was, it upsets me because I think it goes to my own credibility because I actually did an edit myself personally that ended up changing the context of what he said. And, and it caused some people to, to think different things. A lot of people still don't care. Some people really did, you know, they're, they're accusing Damian of lying. And then there's other people that even with that explanation, say, well, it's ridiculous that he wouldn't remember that. Of course, he would remember it. And I don't know. There's there's no way of knowing that. I, I get a little frustrated when I'm reading any comments where you know any of us are are certain we know how someone else would think, and we're certain we know what someone else would remember or how they would react. And we're always trying to project our own personal experiences onto someone. And what you got to understand here is guilty or innocent after. Arrest and trial and eighteen years on death row. I think I'm pretty confident in saying, based on what I've been told by him and people close to him, and just by observing his own behavior in the last couple of years, I think that Damien is trying is tried to make a big effort to forget and move on with his life. He's he's, he's intentionally trying to push all that behind him so he can start over. I don't know whether he remembered or not. What I do know is that when I asked him about it, he said that he thought he did. He couldn't find it. I told him, well, it's not in the picture, must not be there, and he says, okay, well, I guess it wasn't, and then my editing job made it sound like he was just clearly saying he didn't have one, and that's not the case, but that's on me, you can take it or leave it, but that's that's what happened.
0: Okay, and then I also wanted you to address the whole eating of the parents thing, the report. Uh, I know listener Fred Walsh posted on the fan page about that, and as it turns out, it's something that Damien did actually say.
1: Right, yeah, so here's, here's an example of what I was talking about at the very beginning here, So this week's episode, the entire purpose, and I think some people kind of didn't catch this or realize it. I tried to make it clear, but the purpose of this episode, this episode wasn't about Damien Eccles. This episode was about the investigation. It was to answer, the only purpose was to answer the question, how did Damien become a suspect to begin with? So I'm looking at all the reports from that time and cross-referencing all that stuff. But I also know there's a lot more that happened beyond here, and that's why in the episode I specifically said, I'm not saying that this didn't happen because at the time I don't know. I didn't know I do know now, but I didn't know whether it did or not. That wasn't my point. My point was that the source of that information in those documents seemed to be Jerry Driver. Uh when you read the reports uh in, in the exhibit five hundred, which are Damien's medical records from page one hundred two to one oh seven are the reports from St. Vincent's Hospital. It doesn't say anything in there about there's there's some stuff about some threats when I read that later but not to the father. It was actually uh, threats to his mother uh, and nothing about, you know, threatening to eat somebody. And so there's nothing there. And then again, the police report, there's nothing there. Damien's father wrote a letter to the court uh, that downplayed the incident. But the point was, driver says that at some point he gets a call. And so what what I think happened, what it seems happened, is that driver spoke with Damien's dad. Damien's dad told him that's what happened. Driver calls the hospital and tells them that. Because there's another page when Damien got back to, I think it was at the hospital in Arkansas. In any case, it's uh, I think it's on page 366 of that document, where it says that Jerry Driver is the informant that you know, then tells this story. But in any case, so I literally, that's why I said, I'm not saying it didn't happen, because I literally didn't know if it did or not, and I didn't ask Damien about it. Um, I just wanted a real brief thing to talk about that interview with Steve Jones and, and Sudbury was the purpose of our call. But this is something that Damien has never denied. When you read the trial transcripts, I was even told, you know, and, and that's the other thing, you know, we we've got people in this case that are so far deeply years invested into this. I mean, people are like citing to me uh, stuff that Damien wrote in his book. And I, I haven't studied Damien's book and I haven't even gotten into his trial testimony yet because we're going to when we get there, uh, where a lot of this stuff gets cleared up or, or discussed. Damien describes the situation in his book from what I was told and what, what was sent to me that I was able to read uh, that he did, in fact, say and it wasn't at the house, but it was at the hospital. Damien said that it was uh it wasn't as a threat as though he was a cannibal, but it was in the sense that most people would use the phrase eat you alive, where you know him and his dad are arguing and Damien said, Well, I'd eat you alive, meaning that he would best him or that he was better than him or something like that. That's Damien's explanation for it in the book. There are people that are gonna absolutely believe that. There are people that are gonna absolutely not believe that, and you're gonna and a lot of people in between. But for what it's worth, that was Damien's description. But that incident did, in fact, occur, according to Damien himself, when he testified later at trial.
0: People were commenting about Damien's answer to the questionnaire about his sister being abused, where he said
1: that it didn't bother him. I guess I read that differently than some people did, and I'm sure there are a lot of different viewpoints on it. So in the questionnaire, I read it as his stepfather abused his sister but didn't bother him, meaning the stepfather did not abuse him, he abused the sister. And there's no real indication on the report. It just says stepfather abused his sister a few months ago, didn't bother him. He doesn't say he didn't bother him. It doesn't say it didn't bother him. Now, later, when Shane Griffin wrote his report after the fact about what happened there, he wrote in there that it didn't bother him. Uh, but, that you know, that's the tricky part here when we, you know, we're dealing with we're dealing with accusations Of some corruption. Okay, I'm not saying that that there is corruption. I mean, there was corruption in West Memphis PD at this time. They were being investigated for it by the state police. But at this point, in this case, we can't go so far as to say that happened. But there's questions of corruption. And so you don't have a recorded interview. There's no tape recorder where you can hear what Damien actually said. What we know is Damien said something during the questionnaire. And Shane Griffin wrote that note on the paper where it just says, didn't bother him. Then we know that after the fact, Shane Griffin went back and wrote a report on what happened in that. And then he wrote that he said it didn't bother him. That's what Shane Griffin says that Damien Eccles said. So, if that makes any sense. So, th- I think there's definitely different ways to interpret it. And I, I, I'm sure if I asked Damien, he would probably say what I just said. I, I would guess, you know, innocent or guilty, that's probably how he would respond. But I don't know. But for any what it's worth, there's two different ways to look at that. Either he's saying it didn't bother him that his stepfather abused his sister, or he's saying his stepfather abused his sister and didn't abuse him or didn't bother him.
0: All right. There's also been some discussion on Damien's animal skull collection. Can we cover that?
1: Yeah, this is a wild one to me because it, that didn't strike me as odd at all. You know, I, I grew up in a rural area. And, you know, when I was out in the woods or hiking around, you'd you'd find you know, raccoon skulls and possum skulls and deer skulls. And we would always, as kids, we would always take them and, and, and take them home and put them in a room. Our parents would be grossed out because they were they were dirty and they were always going to be disease infested or whatever. But it's a normal thing. My kids, Quentin, my son, has a an alligator skull in his room right now. Um, you know, so it seemed like like a normal thing. I mean, I guess some people would think it was weird. But then people were talking about there's a difference between that and, you know, cleaning the skin off and scooping the brains out and, and doing all that work to make a skull. Well, I, I don't know, and someone I'm sure will correct me if I'm wrong. I don't know that that's ever been proven that Damien actually did that. I mean, the way I took from what he was telling us, at least in that conversation, was that he would find the skulls. For those of you who aren't aware, I'm sure most of you are, if an animal dies out in the elements you know, between bugs and other animals and just weather and time, you know, All the flesh will come off of a skull and it'll just be a skull or a skeleton. So that's what I thought he was getting. But I, I know there is one report, I guess, I don't know, you have to take it on your own. I don't have it right in front of me. But uh, there was a report of someone later on that said that there was, I think it was a Great Dane that was dying and then Damien killed it and then stomped it out and stomped its guts out and tried to get, it's just a horrible story about this thing Damien did to this dying Great Dane. I don't know if there's any corroboration to it. Uh, and one thing you got to realize as we go forward and we're going to get into this in the main episodes is this whole case is an absolute recipe for disaster. And I say that because something happened with this case that doesn't happen to a lot of others, and that's the fact that there was a whole bunch of money raised very quickly and offered as a reward to anyone with information. And this is a poor community. And now now the area, the neighborhood where the boys lived, that was I would say lower middle class. Uh, not necessarily poor, but the areas where Damian, Jesse, and Jason lived, those were poor. These were 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 very poor, lower class trailer parks. And all of a sudden, people start dangling around a thirty thousand dollar reward, saying, "If you have information, here's thirty grand." I mean, that's literally more than their homes cost in that in that trailer park. And so it, it's kind of an enticement. And then you add to that where you have you know these juvenile probation officers that are making their rounds through those trailer parks, showing pictures of Damien. And, you know, according to to some of the witnesses and according to Damien, they were, in fact, going around with his picture and telling them, you know, we, we think he's involved. Do you have any information? And there are definitely reports of people being enticed with the reward. You know, if you have any information, we've got, you know, there's a $30,000 reward. It's just a recipe for disaster to take uh, the underclassed and poor, financially poor people and hold this carrot of this massive reward in front of them. Then people start coming out of the woodwork. So like that story about Damien, again, there's, no one's ever heard from the owner of that dog, I don't believe. No one's ever corroborated that it happened. It doesn't appear to be any follow-up. It's just a kid who says he saw this happen. But, you know, a Great Dane is not a, a cheap dog. That's not a mutt. You know, whoever owned, you know, I actually used to own, I have a great Dane. The person that owns that dog would seem that they would remember or know or be, or would know what happened to the dog and there's no corroboration to it. But in any way, in any case, if someone can direct me to some sort of proof that Damien actually did all of that, then okay. I still don't think it's that, you know, I, I guess I can cite my baby brother, Bert, my little brother. He does it all the time with deer skulls, you know, deer that he shot, deer that he finds, you know, if he finds like a deer carcass, He'll take and boil the skin. He uses, I think he boils them in water and boils the skin off of their head and, and does de them and cleans them up. And then he cleans them down with bleach to really make them bone white. And then displays, he's got skulls all over the place. Not just his trophies, but just deer skulls that he's found or come across. So people need to understand, there's a lot more. We haven't even begun. Like, we literally just started this investigation. And all we addressed in this one episode was, where it began we haven't even really got into Damien so we're going to get into all of this stuff but in and of itself collecting skulls whether they're just found or whether they're cleaned up and displayed however it was however that is I I, I don't think that makes anybody a murderer there's plenty of people that do that now you know be people that'll say that yeah well if you if you add that up with everything else maybe it means something and maybe it does we'll get there but that's best I got on the skulls is guy had a skull collection lots of kids do
0: Okay, let's take a quick break here for our sponsor. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? uh in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win in towel.
1: In that case, I pronounce you lucky.
0: Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is kind of a funny one, but a lot of listeners are talking about your Dr. Sue segment. What's that all about?
1: <laughs> well, a couple of people asked me if I did that on purpose and if it was just due to years of being a dad, and both are true. Uh, and I think they're referring to my tall cop, short cop, fat cop, skinny cop. Uh, Priceless. Bit. Yeah, and uh, I just try to add a little bit of lighthearted humor into, into the show. But yeah, that was it was intended to be kind of funny. Thanks for noticing.
0: Now, there is one email that I want to read, and it is from one of our listeners who's in the armed services serving in Afghanistan. This is from Jason, and first of all, thank you for your service, Jason. He says, I'm a new listener and have thoroughly enjoyed the show, and I applaud your efforts. My question is in regards to Damien Eccles' residence at the time of the killings. Did he actually reside in Lakeshore Trailer Park at the time of the killings, or was his association with that trailer park exclusive to his being found and arrested at the vacant trailer with his girlfriend? The town of Marion has been mentioned several times, and it seems there may be some confusion over whether he actually resided in Marion or not.
1: Okay, first of all, yes, Jason, thank you for your service. Uh, we appreciate it, and thanks, Mike, for. Giving Jason a shot here and reading his email. Uh, And it's actually a really good question uh, because Damien's bounced around quite a bit. So Lakeshore Trailer Parks are in Marion, which is just on the other side of the highway from West Memphis. So it's a little you've got the neighborhood, the bayou, the discovery site where the boys were found. And then there's the highway. Other side of the highway right there is Marion. So it's a stone's throw away. Up the road, probably, I don't know, a couple of miles maybe is the Lakeshore Trailer Park. That is where Jason Baldwin lived. And at one point, I believe Damien Eccles lived in that trailer park. He lived right there, right near Jason. But now at the time of the murders, Damien was actually living in the Broadway trailer park, which was down in the southeast area, uh, south of the neighborhood where the crime occurred and to the east of it. So Broadway runs along the, uh, the south end of that neighborhood, so a little east from there. That's where Damien lived. Uh, but his girlfriend Domini, lived in Lakeshore Trailer Park, I believe, which is also where his best friend Jason Baldwin lived. So he spent a lot of time there. And that's actually where Griffin and Durham tracked Damien down to do the questionnaire was at Jason's trailer, which is up in Lakeshore Trailer Park.
0: Okay, and people want to know why Jerry Driver, as a juvenile probation officer, was patrolling the trailer park for a DUI.
1: That's a good question, too. And, and you know, he said in his trial testimony, he's talking about when he said he says that he saw Damien and Jason and Jesse with their long black coats and staffs walking through the trailer park that night. And he says that we were on a, a routine drive through. It, it definitely caught me as odd too. I, I, I don't have an answer for you. I don't know. Maybe things work different down in West Memphis, Arkansas than they do here in Bering County, Michigan. Uh, but first of all, probation officers here are not law enforcement officers. They're not sworn cops. Uh, so they don't patrol in the and I actually have a good friend who is a juvenile probation officer uh and I I asked her about this and she's like I've never went on patrol you know they they have the juveniles are required to come into their office and meet with them on certain occasions if they can't do that they'll go out in the field and go meet with their probation probationees or whatever you call them to check in with them uh and then they go out in the field if they get a a complaint about somebody that's on probation so I have no idea why Jerry Driver was out doing what he called a routine drive through unless that happened to be on a full moon, because we know that he did do patrols, late-night patrols, uh, and people have poked fun about it. I'm not trying to do that. I'm just saying it's a fact that the man would do late-night patrols and drive throughs uh, or drive-arounds on full moon nights. But then he also said we were about to stop somebody suspected of a DUI, and, and I am just baffled by that. Unless he was just doing like a ride-along with a cop, Or maybe he was a reserve cop. I don't know. I I don't know why a juvenile probation officer who's not a cop that I'm aware of was driving through a trailer park. And also, we've been to that trailer park, Mike. Me, you and Shane went there. It seems like a strange place to find somebody, you know, a DUI. I mean, they're just, they're narrow roads. There's not very many of them. you can't drive more than 100 feet without turning. Uh, Why they're patrolling in there for DUIs, I just I don't know. I don't have the answer to it. I find it very strange, and I think it makes the the entire story sound a little less than credible. But then again, Damien said that he does remember running into driver in an incident like that. But I I do want to point out, too, and I got into it just a little bit in the conversation with Damien, but I was asking him for a reason, uh, something that I think a lot of people don't realize. uh, And again, some other people may call BS on this, I think, because they've already got their mind made up. But there's no evidence at all that Damien and Jason were friends with Jesse Miss Kelly at all before this. I always thought, looking into the case, that the three of them were you know inseparable. They were best buddies and were around all the time. Jason and Damien were. uh, But when I talked to Jason about it, Jason said he didn't have any association really with Jesse unless he ran into him and would talk to him here and there. They weren't friends. Damien and him weren't friends. The three of them, according to both of them, never hung out with each other. So the whole thing does sound a little suspect, but I mean, from start to finish, the the patrolling, the DUI, and the fact that they were carrying staffs, just, I don't know. I don't have an answer to it. That's best I got.
0: Okay, and listeners want to know, were there any complaints about Driver Jones, and what did they go on to do after the events of the murder?
1: Well, there, you know, Damien had mentioned something about you know, them harassing young boys. Here's the problem is we don't even know who, what kids they worked with to interview them because they're juvenile records and they're sealed. So I, I don't know. Driver had some issues, I know, and and he's deceased now. Otherwise, I would love to talk to him, but it's it's obviously too late to do that. But I was told there was an incident with him, either being arrested or removed from a job due to some bribery issues. Uh, I know for a fact because I pulled the police reports that he was actually arrested uh, years later uh, in Florida and convicted for some kind of theft, uh, down there. So he, he had a bit of a, I won't say a checkered past, a checkered future, I guess, after this, there's just a lot of mystery in, uh, rumors. You know, I've, I've heard rumors that, uh, Jerry Jones, excuse me, that Steve Jones was forced to resign from his post in Marion, uh, in 1995. No one knows why I've, I've had a lot of people, you know tell me things but there's been no substantiation to any of it i haven't been able to corroborate any of it so therefore i'm not even going to e- even even put it out there but no i mean they both have a little bit of a, a checker pass there was a, an article floating around um we actually found it too and thought it was the right guy that there's a Steve Jones that was associated with a juvenile probation in West Memphis that was just recently i think last year convicted of some kind of bribery also and was sentenced to a few years in jail But evidently, that's a different Steve Jones. So you know, he doesn't exactly have the most unique name to to track him down. So I don't I don't know. I said I I know for a fact Driver at least was arrested and convicted in Florida, and I believe there was also this bribery thing with him. I don't you know as far as his credibility. I guess if that's what you're looking for, Jones. I don't know. Like I said, I was told that um, he was forced to resign in '95, and that he's bounced around a little bit since then, and he's had some other issues too. But I can't really confirm or deny any of that.
0: All and let's talk about the purpose of this episode, what our process is, and what we plan to do going forward with future episodes. And along those lines referring to future episodes, a few listeners want to know about Damien's alibi, so can we address that?
1: Yeah, okay, to start at the beginning of that, as I mentioned, the purpose of this episode, and it's going to be everyone, so, I mean, people have been chomping at the bit for us to start our investigation into the West Memphis Three. And as expected, as soon as we put anything out... People that have been, you know, following the case for years come out of the woodwork all over social media, and to be honest, I was, I was a little disappointed at how the narrative was kind of controlled. And I'm not saying anybody intentionally did that, but to me, it almost felt like a lot of people missed the whole point of the episode because the point of the episode was simply, again, not about Damien. The question was, how does it start? I'm trying to go through chronologically in the investigation, and while I'm investigating the investigation and trying to figure out how did they get to Damien to begin with. And I'm looking for some tip or something like that. And as it turns out, that's not what happened. They got to Damien because of Jerry Driver's involvement with Dale Griffiths, where Jerry believed there were satanic cults brewing and, and and growing in West Memphis. He thought Damien Eccles was a big part of it and was involved. He's consulting with Griffiths. Griffiths is telling him, You know, how to prevent, you know, uh, my understanding is it was Griffith's suggestion to do the patrols on full moons because that's when things are going to happen. And then the bodies are found. You've got uh, Jones and Sudbury both think that it's a satanic killing and Jones names Damien. So that's that was the purpose of this episode was to answer the question. How did they get to Damien? And that's the answer. That was the only purpose of the episode. And moving from that it was like the discussion started centering around the tattoo and the skulls and him eating his parents and all this we're not even we're going to get to I keep trying to respond I can't respond to all the posts that we're going to get there we're going to go through the whole investigation I promise those of you that think that Damian and Jason and Jesse are guilty you're going to hear all the bad stuff about him that you want to hear but that's not what this episode was about it was just tracking how we got there and as far as where we're going from here, point by point, we're going to move through this investigation. So we, we we covered section one, you know, part one. How did we get there? Now, in this week's episode, we're going to say, OK, we left off on May 9th. We're going to pick up on May 10th and talk about what happened from there, what tips came in, what was investigated. So we're going to get to all of this. So All of you, just please be patient. We're going to get to everything you want to talk about when we'll even get to Damien's testimony at trial and all of that. But for me, I I think it's important for us to point out, for people to realize, and what I haven't seen is anybody dispute this, and I don't know how they could, but it is fact, that the only reason that Damien Eccles was a suspect was because Steve Jones said he was, which came from Jerry Driver and Dale Griffiths, and that's a fact. And so it's important to note that as we move forward. Now, like I said many times in the episode, That doesn't necessarily mean he's innocent or guilty. They could have gotten it right. But, you know, I actually asked three different listeners who I have some communication with who are what uh, the the West Memphis Three longtime case enthusiasts or whatever you want to call them call nons. So if you hear the term nons, that's a non-supporter. I just recently learned that term. So during the time when they were in prison, there were the West Memphis Three supporters, and then there were the non-supporters. So those would be, you know, in, in season one, the non sayed case, there were the guilters. Uh, In this case, they call them the nons. But anyway, I talked to three different people who are, quote, nons, that are people that believe the West Memphis Three are guilty, and asked them, do they believe that it was a satanic ritual killing? And all three three did say they can't speak for anybody else, just giving their own opinion. No, they don't think that the killing was a satanic ritual killing. So, again, so it's important to note as we move forward, most people, it seems to me, that believe they're guilty, don't believe it was a ritual killing, which then is hard to reconcile with the fact that the only reason that he was a suspect to begin with was because of his the pentagram tattoos and the skulls and uh, and, and his name change and, and that, that he's he's into Satanism, except for that had nothing to do with the crime. And that's what I meant when I said a needle in a haystack. And again, it could be right. Keep in mind, there's other there's parallel investigations happening. There were other suspects that were brought in for whatever reason they thought they were suspicious of, too. You know, there were, there were people that had records of child molestation, sex offenders. They were interviewed without without cause because they thought it was a sexual assault situation. So it's not completely that out of the ordinary, but it's just important to point out that they said, oh, look, it's a ritual killing. Damien Eccles is a Satanist. Let's go get him. And then it turns out it's not a ritual killing. I don't believe it was. And many other people don't either. But yet still, he was their guy. And that's that's all I meant by the needle in the haystack comment was, you know, it was it's it's lucky because the reason they were looking into him appears to have been wrong. But they they say that they got the right guy anyway. Anyway, going forward, that's where we're going to go piece by piece. We're going to get there uh, and we'll be hopefully not having to do too much policing on the fan page and stuff. But we will be shutting down when people are are, are running rampant uh, with these conversations with people, you know, jumping way ahead. There are just people that are new to the case that are fans of the show. They're trying to follow along and have discussions, and they're just not interested in being jumped by people saying, well, this is what happened a year later. We'll get to all of that. But um, as far as the alibi goes, so we're going to get into everyone's alibis, and we're going to talk about all that in depth later. But there, there is an indication of, of alibis here in this first episode, in those first few days. Damien uh, was asked what his alibi was. He says that, that he was with Jason while Jason was mowing the grass. His dad picked him up, and he went home. They talked to, you know, in the first interview, he just said he was home from 6 o'clock on. And also remember that Sudbury, was it Sudbury? Geez, now I'm thinking it was it was actually Durham or Griffin. When they interviewed his parents, his parents said, his dad said that he was, in fact, home from 6 o'clock on that night. So right now, that's what we have for an alibi. There's no specifics. It's simply that Damien says he was home, and his alibi was confirmed by his parents who said that he was home from 6 o'clock on, on that night. And that alibi was given two days after the crime. So uh, from there, we're going to dig into it deeper, but that's what we have for Alibi Now. And we're going to go ahead and have to call this one a day because i got to get on. I've got about 12 hours left before we got to record the main episode before i got to hit the road again.
0: All right, sounds good, Bob. This was a good follow-up. Thanks, everyone, for your thoughts and theories.
1: Truth and Justice is a production of NBI Studios. Michael Bussing is your executive producer. And all music for the show was created by PutThemInASong.com. Our Friday follow-up logo was created by Amanda Meyer of Willow Photo and Designs. I want to thank Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, managing, maintaining our website. And thank you to our transcription team, Anna Dendorf, Sarah Mueller, Britta Bliss, and Stephanie McConnell. And keep in touch with us through our email, theories at com. Our Twitter feed, at Pod facebook page or the truth and justice podcast fans page and remember you can always leave us a voicemail anytime 24 hours a day seven days a week 269-224-2833 however you do it stay engaged stay in touch but as for now we're signing off i'm bob ruff and i'm mike bussing and this has been truth and justice